just before I lead us in prayer, a quick additional announcement. Those of you that know Gary Kloppenstein, he had a stroke a couple days ago. He's in the hospital physically doing okay, but they have yet to assess where that's going to lead in the days ahead. So please include him on your prayer list, and we'll join our hearts together now as we ask God to bless this time together. Father, we thank you for your presence with us this morning, and we do praise you and thank you that yours is a throne where grace can be found, and you administer your mercy and your help to your people, and we ask for that help this morning. As we open up your word together, and as we apply it, we understand it, And Father, we commit ourselves to live it before you. We need your Spirit's work in our life. We need your enabling grace as these things are applied to us. And allow our thoughts and our meditations this morning around your word to be worship for you. To fill our hearts with your praises and let your Spirit fill us with the gratitude that belongs to our God for all that you have done for your people, for your church. We are grateful for this gift of prayer where we can commune with a holy God, a God of power, but a God of love and mercy and kindness. We pray on behalf of Gary this morning as well that you would administer your your kindness, your peace to his heart in whatever his mind is willing to accept or understand. We pray that you would grant mercy there. We pray for physical healing if that is according to your will, but we also recognize as one of your chosen ones. His destiny, as is ours, is eternal glory, and we praise you for that. Based on the work of your Son on Calvary's cross, on our behalf, we worship you this morning as a God that redeems and saves and rescues. Help us in our meditation and our study now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please join me in Romans chapter 6, please. And I'd like to read from verse 11 down through verse 18. Verse 15 through 18 will be our text of study, but to set our context, let's back up to verse 11, where the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness." Our study in Romans this morning brings us now, verse 15 and beyond, to the second half of chapter 6, where Paul continues to make a case for the reign of grace in the lives of God's people. It is a reign of grace, remember, through righteousness, as chapter 5, verse 21 assures us. And Paul begins the chapter by addressing the critics of the gospel who had accused the doctrine of justification by faith of 
being sloppy about grace. And that grace allows us to sin. And, and verse 1 of chapter 6 starts that way, questioning, are we supposed to enjoy grace to the extent that we ignore sin? And he says, absolutely not. And from there, in the first half of this critical chapter, he shows us that our union with Christ, our union with Christ, lays the foundation for this subject of showing believers that they have died to the old self as Christ died with our sins. And we have also been raised up with Christ, the resurrected Christ, now to walk in the likeness of Christ and to walk in newness of life. And this union with Christ declares that all believers, justified by faith, are no longer slaves to sin. We have been set free from sin in a spiritual sense. The spirit of the believer is no longer a slave to sin. And based on this spiritual transformation, we as believers are no longer to yield our physical bodies, our members of our physical bodies, to unrighteousness. And this is what we are commanded to do, because now, in Christ, we can do what we've been commanded to do. This brings us up to the second part of Romans chapter 6, where Paul begins again with a very similar question in verse 15, to what he questioned in verse 1. Not content to leave this subject of sin and grace to further criticism, verse 15, Paul poses a similar, but notice a slightly different challenge or question than we saw in verse 1. And this would arise from those who object to justification by faith alone apart from works. And in this second half of chapter 6, you will note that the focus will be on slaves and masters. And that's why I've selected the title, Two Masters, because Paul, from here to the end of the chapter, is going to focus on this image of two masters that control all of mankind. They either subject themselves to sin or they submit themselves in obedience to Christ. Sin and obedience, please note, are the only two masters that all men are enslaved to. And in verse 15 to 18, Paul describes what it means for believers to be delivered from the master that we're all born under and placed under another master where grace is found. In this, Paul takes opportunity to recognize the only two possible views for salvation that exist, the only two possible views for the afterlife, however man envisions that afterlife. Either men will work for their own eternal destiny, what Paul refers to as under law, or they will have to rest on the gracious provision of God for salvation, bringing them into God's eternal destiny. Those are the only two options for all of humanity. And for those of us who have been justified by faith in Christ Jesus, they have come out from under law or the works of the law and into the reign of God's grace. And again, Paul has to deal with a couple of serious problems, problems that exist in the modern church today so very clearly. And I believe this second half of chapter 6 really focuses in on what the church looks like in America today. And we're going to begin with the proclamation of grace in verse 15. The proclamation of grace. And I've used that word proclamation because you will notice in verse 15 it's a question. But it's a question that is actually proclaiming something. 
It is a question that is similar to verse 1 in that both confront the error of continuing in sin because of grace. Both are questions again, but make proclamations about continuing in sin where a sinner is under God's saving grace. And these questions highlight the possible objections that unbelievers would have of the gospel. Most likely to take these positions are those who embrace another religion. So we're talking maybe about unbelievers that are very religious. But it's not exclusive to religious people. Non-religious unbelievers are no different in that both intend to face eternity on their own terms. And Paul uses then the expression in verse 15, those that are under the law, under law. When justification by faith alone in Christ alone is preached and that salvation is then by God's grace alone, the skeptic is going to come in and presume that the gospel is no longer concerned about sin. In verse 1, the reasoning is that where more sin is commended, more grace is displayed. However, while the same carelessness for sin under grace is named here in verse 15, the reason is a bit different. Verse 15 does not imply the promotion of more abundant grace where there is sin, but because of the abundance of grace, sin doesn't really matter anymore. It's suggested. Sin is no longer a concern where there's all of this abundant grace. And the reason given for this is because when preaching the gospel, it is declared that believers are not under law. And Paul just said that in verse 15. We would affirm what Paul said in verse 14. He made that declaration, for sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, meaning we're not under law in regard to our salvation. We are not justified by law or our works to keep the law. We are justified by what? Faith alone apart from works. But the unbelieving person is going to say, well, then what you're saying is because of grace, you can do whatever you want. But Paul then in verse 14 words the question, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Now he's talking about where we live as a believer from this day forward. And the false notion that Paul objects to is that once justified, we are not sanctified by obedience to law either. And he said that is not at all the Christian gospel. That is not what grace is. It's not what grace does. Where the thinking goes wrong is that because we are justified by grace alone, we must be sanctified by grace alone apart from the works of the law. And Paul says, no, that is not the case at all. We are saved, justified by grace. But it is that same grace that puts us under the law of Christ. And therefore, it is assumed that whether someone sins or not, it doesn't really matter. And that is a wrong assumption. That's not the gospel of grace. It is this question in verse 15 that really fits well, I believe, with the modern Christian mentality, which holds to a very antinomian flavor in our day and age in this country. It is not that Christians today believe sin is wrong, because we do believe it's wrong. But because of grace, the thinking is that sin is not that big a deal because of all the abundant grace that we know we've received. Now, I say we, not necessarily meaning us specifically here in the church. 
we look out at the, the church in the world or in this nation today and we see a very strong anti-law presentation of living your Christian faith. We're under grace so we can do what we want. That's not necessarily our mentality, but we know that we can fudge on these issues too. And from there, many Christians begin to grow soft on sin, which leads very often to redefining certain sins as non-sins, depending on how bad, badly we want to continue to participate in that sin. Just call it a non-sin. In addition, we see in the church today, when our attitude softens on our own sin, we're going to very often excuse the sins of others as not that critical a matter, because if we judge somebody else's sins, I mean, I've got to stop doing my own sin. i got to pay attention to my... We don't want to do that. So the whole church can go in this mentality of no longer regarding sin as that critical of a matter. And before long, we're embracing the sins of the world as not all that sinful. And whether we proclaim this or not by our very words, we sometimes proclaim it by our actions when we live as if we are not under the laws of Christ because of grace. So it's not just the unsaved religious person that may question grace as we read in verse 15. It can also be the professing believer who devalues the reign of grace through God's righteousness. And again, what is Paul's attitude to this mentality? May it never be. May it never be. If his previous discourse in the first half of chapter 6 did not make this clear, he most certainly will here in the second half of chapter 6. And notice that the naming of the law is without the definite article. Paul does not say in verse 15, we are not under the law. He just says we're not under law. And that indicates that Paul is not focusing exclusively on the law of Moses. He's looking at more the law of God in general. In chapter 2, he noted that not only do the Jews have the law of Moses, but the Gentiles have the law of God written on their hearts. And we saw that again in chapter 5, when Paul addressed that even before Moses came along, people were sinning against the laws of God. What Paul has in mind here in verse 15 is the idea that men aren't under the law of God in general, because grace has stepped in to take care of our sin. The moral laws given to the Jews, as well as the laws written on the hearts of Gentiles. And the question in verse 15 follows again, verse 14, where Paul reminds us that true gospel believers, we are under grace. In other words, we're saved by grace. We are not saved by the works of the law. But we most certainly are sanctified by the works of the law, as those that come under grace. In our closing thoughts from last week, we clarified that what Paul means by this is that we're not saved by being obedient to God's laws because none are able to keep those laws perfectly. We are, rather, saved by God's grace, meaning his gracious provision of salvation through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But the whole theme of the chapter is that we are not free to disregard God's law as Christians who are saved by grace. To do so, to disregard God's laws as believers, is sin, which is contrary to God's work of grace in saving us. We are saved from the penalty of sin as well as from the bondage of sin. The gospel saves us by grace alone, but grace also saves us 
in order to cause believers to walk in righteousness before God. We are saved by grace to walk then in the laws of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 makes this clear. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, right, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, why were you saved? Well, it was to have eternal life, which is true. But a reason we are saved, according to Ephesians 2.10, is so that we can walk in the righteousness of God. It's the very reason grace has come. And he explains the same doctrine in Romans chapter 6. But he does so with the language of slaves and masters. And this brings us to verse 16, where he gives to us a principle or principles of enslavement. These are principles of enslavement. Verse 15 leads Paul to ask a second question, which is actually, again, a statement, a statement of principles about how grace is practiced and lived out by true believers. Do you not know? That's the question. In other words, believers must know this. This is something that we need to understand and we need to embrace. It is a challenge for the body of Christ to be clear in our own minds about how we regard sin as a people of grace. Paul is really saying to every believer, this is what we must understand about law and grace as followers of Christ, those who have come under his reign of his redemptive grace through God's righteousness. We need to know this. We need to embrace it. We are not saved by keeping the laws of God because we're not capable of keeping those laws. But God's grace does save us so that we are able to keep his laws and therefore we must. We must. Before grace was known to us, men had lived under law in their own efforts to keep it, but they couldn't keep it. They couldn't keep the laws of God. Only grace could save But the question that needs to be answered in all of us is this. Why were you saved by grace? Why does salvation provide grace and what is it meant to accomplish? Is it only to give sinners eternal life or is there another purpose? Paul's answer is that we were once under a master called sin. And I will reference master sin. You can give it that official title. The slave owner is sin. That's the master. The cross of Christ delivers those who believe from that master and bring them under a new master called obedience. Those who believe are taken out of that master's sin and placed into a new master called obedience. And what this declaration makes clear is that Christians have been saved now to walk in righteousness. This passage has got to be a magnificent struggle for those that object to the doctrine of lordship salvation. In other words, what we mean by that is that when someone comes to faith, genuinely becomes a believer, they surrender not only to Christ as their Savior, they must of necessity surrender to Christ Jesus as their Lord. Because that's exactly what Paul is describing here in the second half of Romans chapter 6. The practice of God's righteousness is a fundamental work of God's saving grace on sinners. And from this, Paul shows that there are only two masters and all men and women are under one or they are under the other. They're not under both, they're under one or the other. 
And it's important to see there is no third. There's no neutral territory here. Men are either under master sin or they are under master obedience. And Paul further establishes that how we live, how we practice in life, or what we practice in life, proclaims which master we serve. And we will look at those truths in just a minute. Verse 16 begins by challenging Christians fully understand that what we present ourselves to, what we yield ourselves to in this life exposes the master we serve. And we're either a slave to obedience or we're a slave to sin, one or the other. We're going to look at master sin first. That slavery to sin leads to death. And in this case, living in obedience to master sin means that we're not truly free but we are a slave to sin, which results in death. And I would submit this is so important for us to know if we're going to just discern what is going on in our world today. I think all of us want in America a more moral nation. But do you realize a president isn't going to do that for us? A political party isn't going to fix this. The only thing that's going to fix this problem in America is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul is telling us. I mean, I'm looking, I brought this stuff up before. How can we as a people that are a culture that supposedly supports the sanctity of life, how can we kill the most innocent unborn life? How is it we reason this out? How is it we're struggling with how to even know what's a man and a woman and all of the complications that come with that confusion? such that we're surgically going to destroy our bodies to make us something we cannot be. And now we're doing it to children. This doesn't even make sense. How are you and I as Christians going to reason what's going on in our supposed moral nation and what's going to fix this? I'm looking at, as many of you are, what's happening in in the college campuses. We know what Hamas did to Israel. I was just reading an article that was that I'm sure some of you have read about what Hamas did to some of the civilians. It is horrendous. And it's amazing to me that we as a civilized society have college students that are supporting that. What is wrong with us? Do we not know how to reason? These are not ideology issues. These are not philosophical issues. This is right and wrong. But the only way you and I can discern what's wrong with our culture is to recognize that world out there is a slave to sin. That's the only way we can address this. It's the only way we can reason through this. How do we account for this lack of understanding of right and wrong? It is enslavement, is it not? That's what Paul said. The world is enslaved to a master, and that master's name is what? Sin. Master sin. We are born into sin through Adam, as chapter 5 has already established. And because all men are under sin, it does not matter if someone is religious or entirely secular. Hamas is religious, and look at what they do. It doesn't matter if you're religious or entirely secular. From the most moral and devoted religionist to the most vile and anti-God atheist, all serve the same master. Master sin. 
where sin is named as the master that holds all men in slavery, it cannot mean the occasional sin of the believer. Otherwise, this chapter would make no sense in what Paul calls us away from responding to the desires of our mortal bodies. We just studied that last week. The impulses of our flesh. Christians do sin. Paul's not talking about that when he references master sin. Lloyd-Jones refers to mastery of sin as the continuance in a state of sin or a settled life of sin. We just read from 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. The apostle John wrote to Christians, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. This clearly affirms that even Christians sin. But we're not under the master of sin. So Paul is not talking about Christians who occasionally will sin when he references this master sin. John is calling us to be honest about the ongoing battle that believers will have with sin. And we learned from our previous study, that's the body of flesh that still causes us to contend against sins or the desires to indulge in things that God says are not permissible. But our spirit... It has died to sin. It is buried and at rest. It is no longer enslaved to sin. At the same time, as we learn from Romans chapter 6, the believer no longer has then that spirit that is enslaved to sin. It is not our master anymore. If you're here today as a believer, your master is not sin. Yes, we fall to sins. That's what 1 John was telling us. Later in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, he makes this almost contrasting comparison. No one who is born of God practices sin. That's that continual state of sin, that settled life of sin. No one who is born of God, we would say reborn or born again, practices sin because his seed, God's seed, is now in us. And we cannot sin in that habitual practice of life. Because he is born of God. It's that practice of sin that Lloyd-Jones referred to as the settled life of sin. And we have to make that distinction. When Paul is referencing master sin, he's talking about the unbeliever enslaved to it. An enslavement we have been set free from. But for the man or woman who has not taken hold of God's saving grace by faith, they are still under law a law they cannot keep, and they're held captive to the enslavement of sin. And while they think they are free to do as they please, and our world does, in truth, they can do no other than sin. Man is not autonomous. There is no such thing. We think about the abortion industry. What's the big fight? It's not the sanctity of life that we're concerned with. It's women's rights. They have the freedom to do as they please. That's not freedom. It's slavery. How does the Christian explain the taking of innocent life? It's enslavement. And only the gospel will help this problem. From this reality, there is no one who is truly free, spiritually speaking. And as much as we oppose slavery, we all live as slaves, either to sin or to obedience. There is no neutral territory or living in a compromised state between these two masters. We are enslaved to one or the other. Further, sin is slavery that leads to death, Paul says here in verse 16. 
Because all men are born into sin, sin is the master of all mankind. And based on this, the master who has control of you is going to control your eternal destiny. Paul sets down this principle, that which you live in obedience to is your master. They must obey this master. They have no ability not to obey this master. Men are not free to do as they will, though they presume they're indulging in the desires of their own flesh is the freedom that they enjoy. It's not freedom. It is slavery. And it holds all men captive to sin's final bondage, which is death. And there is no escape for them when they enter into death. Men are held captive to serve sin and to be held by its eternal outcome. I want you to notice when Paul references death, a slavery that leads to death, master brings that death. It's not necessarily referring to physical death here because even Christians experience that physical death. And if we jump ahead to verse 22, Paul is going to show us that even though we physically die, eternal life is what we look forward to. So here, Paul, in verse 16, has something different in mind when he talks about master-slave leading us into death, or not us, but leaving the unbelieving world to death. The death that will be experienced by those under master sin is spiritual, and it is a condemning death. This is a reference to the eternal judgment of God that sin has earned for all who serve that master. One author writes that this death is the loss of everything that can really be called life. It is the loss of everything that can really be called life. Think about what Jesus said of himself. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. If you want to know what life is, we look at the author of life, Christ himself. Everything that is divine, holy, good, righteous, pure, full of joy, peace, and glory, it's found in Jesus who is life. John wrote of this in chapter 1 in his gospel. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. To experience death as a slave to sin fully separates that slave from all that is truly life. To be a slave to sin is not freedom at all, but a bondage that holds men captive in this life, and it will hold them captive in life eternity to come. That's master sin. That's the first master. The second master Paul names, number two master, is master obedience. Slavery to obedience leads to righteousness. All men are born into slavery of sin, but believers are born again. Christians are freed from slavery to master sin, and now we yield to a new master called obedience. And here obedience indicates a faith response first to the gospel of Jesus Christ, again as Lord and Savior. As Savior, because the only means of justification before God must be found in His Son and the work that He accomplished on the cross for sinners. It has already been clearly established by Paul that whether Jew or Gentile, the works of man are insufficient to justify sinners before God. And this is what he meant by believers no longer being under law in regard to our salvation. Our futile efforts to keep God's law came to an end when we came to faith in Christ. 
That laboring for eternity ended there because by faith we rested on justification through the work of Christ. Believers obey the summons of the gospel first and foremost to trust in Jesus alone as our only Savior. We cannot save ourselves. No man can, only the man God Christ Jesus. And in this sense, we have already been obedient to the sacrifice of Jesus as our Savior as a work of God's grace in bringing us into salvation. So when we think of obedience, first and foremost, we've obeyed the summons of the gospel. We may think of gospel as merely an invitation. It is a commandment that all men be saved through God's Son. And only the believer has obeyed that commandment because our hearts have been made alive to do so. But there's also an obedient response to Jesus as Lord, not just as Savior, but as Lord of our redeemed life. That obedience that Paul speaks of here brings us into a life of righteousness, which means that we are declared righteous through the divine imputation of Christ's righteousness. We've talked about that in the past. And in that imputed righteousness, we are made capable of living in God's righteousness. So we need to see the imputed righteousness as not just a covering that is over the sinner that now believes, but it is a practical, it's an active righteousness where God empowers, enables us to walk in a manner that is worthy of Christ. We have the capacity to obey Christ, to keep his laws. And to walk in a manner that is worthy of God's Son. And this is first understood as our sinful spirit has died. It is laid in the grave with Christ, as Paul has already made clear. And we are raised up spiritually alive in Christ, in his likeness, and able to walk in newness of life, life which is Christ. Then Paul continued to show us in chapter 6 that even the physical members of our body... They're still prompted and, 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 and tempted to indulge in the desires of the flesh. But Paul goes on to say, don't do it. The members of your physical body can actually be used as instruments of righteousness to God. We didn't have that ability before. But by God's grace, the work of his transforming grace, he has now made us from incapable to now capable of walking in righteousness. Paul then continues to show us that even the physical members of our body can walk in righteousness. Notice then how he speaks of the first master as sin that results in death. You would immediately think, well, the second master, obedience, must then result in what? Life. But Paul does not say that, does he? Because if he did, that would be a contradiction of the gospel itself. Our obedience doesn't merit us eternal life. Our obedience as a justified people sanctifies us or grows us in the likeness of Christ because now in Christ we've been enabled by grace to walk in righteousness. And therefore, obedience results in righteousness, not life, because we have been granted life only through faith in Christ. Were Paul, were Paul to have said that this master is obedience that results in life, he would be preaching a gospel of works, and he's not going to do it. Instead, what saving grace accomplishes is it brings the believer into obedience that results in a life of righteousness. And he will more carefully describe that in verse 22 
when we get there. But there's a third point we need to make here before we move on from verse 16. He shows us master sin. He shows us master obedience that all believers are now under. And then he makes clear that slavery to either of those two masters is by yielding, not by professing. Paul shows in verse 16 that we identify which master we serve, not by our words, not by our profession of faith, not by our testimony, but by who we yield ourselves over to. You are slaves, he writes, of the one whom you obey. And this, again, is an important truth because many people claim to be Christian, but Jesus even warned you will know them by their fruits. Many are going to come and say, Lord, Lord, I'm one of yours. But Jesus said, you will know them not by their words, but by their fruits. In other words, if someone claims to be a follower of Christ, but they habitually or continuously are walking in a life of sin, they are not yielding in obedience to the righteousness of Christ. They are still under another master, master sin. And again, God's word is not referring to the occasional sin found in all Christians, nor is it referring to brief seasons of rebellion that a Christian can find themselves in. Slavery to sin as master of one's life describes the settled life of sin or the continuance in a state of sin that characterizes the world of unbelievers. I know I've said this before, but this is so true of us as believers. We don't do anything perfectly. We don't walk in righteousness perfectly. When Jesus said, we're to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, and mind, I don't do that perfectly. But guess what? The blood of Christ covers that imperfection. So as God looks upon me, he sees me as a perfect lover of God. I don't do it perfectly, but the blood of Christ covers that. And now I've been gifted by grace the ability to walk in righteousness that God looks at and he approves of, not because I do it perfectly, but because I do it perfectly in Christ. He covers my imperfection and he enables me by, by his grace to walk in newness of life. This is a major concern of the Apostle John and it's a theme of his epistle as we read this morning from 1 John. But in chapter 1, of John's first epistle, he acknowledges that Christians will sin. And he says, look, if you're going to say you don't sin, you're a liar. He doesn't mince words, does he? But he also writes that true believers are those that confess their sin regularly, and they will endeavor to walk in light of Christ's righteousness and not walk in darkness. That's going to characterize the believer or the follower of Christ. In other words, Christians do sin but live in continual repentance and confession before God and through Christ, endeavoring to walk in the light of his righteousness. However, John continues to write against the habitual practice of sin, even dogmatically stating that true believers will keep the commandments of Christ. And the one who claims to know Christ but does not obey Christ, he says, is a liar and the truth of God is not in him. Look with me at 1 John chapter 2 again. And just look at these verses in chapter 2 of 1 John that speak to this dilemma. We are Christians that sin, but habitually sin. Notice how these verses align with Romans chapter 6 on the principles of enslavement. Chapter 2, verse 3, John writes, By this we know... 
that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. We couldn't do that before. But by the power of God's grace, we are made enabled to do that. Verse 4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, and that's talking about a habitual practice of walking with Christ, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in Christ ought himself to walk in the same manner as Christ walked. We now in Christ can do that. Where before under master sin we could not. The point to be drawn from these passages and what Paul describes here in Romans chapter 6 is how we know which master a person is enslaved to. And we know which master we're enslaved to by the one that we yield ourselves to. It's not by our words that we know if a person serves master sin or master obedience. Rather, it's the one that a man or woman yields themselves to that determines that master. And as this verse makes clear, such a person cannot serve both. They're either enslaved to sin as an unbeliever, or they are born again to yield themselves to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we would ask, because we're under grace, are we to be careless about sin? And we would say along with Paul, heaven forbid. May it never be. And this leads Paul, interestingly enough, in verse 17 and 18, to praise for freedom and for slavery. It just brings him to a place where he's got to stop and thank God. After identifying the practice of believers and unbelievers, Paul turns in these two verses to give praise to God for the transformation that the Roman Christians had experienced, delivering them from master sin and bringing them into obedience to Christ so that they can walk in righteousness. This not only affirms what has already been taught, Paul's repeating some of the doctrines he's already stated, but it shows the gratitude that Paul had for the salvation of souls in Rome that he had heard about. He'd never met these believers, but he'd heard the testimony of God's transforming grace that once they were under master sin, and now they're under master obedience, and it's evident because of what they're doing, how they're living, who they're yielding themselves to. These may seem like mere doctrinal fine points that we've been going over. But to Paul, just writing to the church about these things filled his heart with thanksgiving to God for the transforming work of the cross. And we can almost picture him writing down with his parchment and his pen, getting this letter off to Rome. And he's coming through these intricate doctrines in chapter 5 and chapter 6. And he just stops. And I believe he actually did stop and give thanks to God. And so he's going to put it in pen. I just prayed for you. I give thanks to God. Because all that I'm hearing about this transforming work of grace in our Sunday school class, uh, Dr. Lawson took us to the book of Romans. And he was citing how Paul came into that conversion as Saul, the persecutor of the church. Nobody knows the gift of transforming grace more than Paul. He experienced it. And here he's hearing the testimony of these Roman Christians that had come out from under master sin and been delivered and handed over to a new master. And now they are enslaved to Christ. And the beauty of that transformation, what does he do? He pauses to give thanks to God for what God has done. Paul's thankfulness to God recounts much of what he's already written. So I don't want to retrace those steps or cover territory that we've already addressed. 
but we can take a moment to explore the wonder that Paul was struck with as he contemplated the spiritual deliverance of these believers, beginning with they had become obedient. He'd heard the testimony. These Roman Christians had not only raised their hands or repeated a prayer after the pastor, they received justifying grace and it transformed them. So Paul expressed his thankfulness to God, though they were once slaves of sin like all humanity, in Christ they became obedient to the gospel itself first. The fact that these sinners became obedient to the gospel was not attributed to them. But God was thanked for this, because it's God that did that work. Back in chapter 5, Paul referred to salvation as the free gift, remember? So Paul had gone appropriately to God and thanked him for what he had done for and to these Roman sinners. God had opened their understanding. The scales of their eyes had been removed so that they could receive Christ by faith. And once the Holy Spirit had come upon these sinners, bringing them to life out of spiritual deadness, they responded to the call of the gospel in obedient faith. And this opened them up to the imputed righteousness of Christ, whereby God looked upon them with favor. They were raised up with Christ to walk in obedience to his righteousness. Paul has witnessed many of these transformations throughout his gospel journeys. And yet he still praises God every time he hears of it, every time he sees it. Men were delivered from sin's bondage, bringing them into the righteousness of God's Son. Secondly, he's giving thanks because their hearts were engaged. Notice the language that Paul uses here. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. And the mention of the heart tells us that this was a genuine conversion. This was a heartfelt experience. When he writes of obedience to the heart, this is expressing sincerity and genuineness in their faith. The obedient of heart tells us that the will of these folks, their will had been changed. There was no mere outward conduct or external change. This just wasn't a moral fix. Paul had just warned of the signs or the sins of our mortal bodies and the members of our bodies that were once engaged in unrighteousness. But here he reminds us all that the external righteousness of Christians is not some insincere moralism. It's a work of obedience on the heart, causing our actions to be righteous. And this is what Jesus spoke of when he told the Pharisees, look, you've cleaned up the outside of the cup. Inside it's filthy. Paul is saying, not so with you Roman believers. What God has done, he's done a work on your heart. And because of it now, you're yielding outwardly to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul had heard of the genuineness of their faith. But these were believers that Paul had not yet met, not been to Rome at this time. We already read that in chapter 1. How is it that he was praising God for the sincerity of the hearts toward the gospel when he'd never met them? What did Paul know that caused him to thank God for taking away their hearts of stone and replacing these Roman believers with a heart of flesh that obeys God? Well, he answers that with the next statement. They were committed. They were committed. I give thanks to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. 
These believers were committed to the teaching of the gospel that they'd been taught. And the word committed is, again, communicating the idea of yielding themselves over. They were trusting in. This is exemplified in verse 18. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. They yielded to the laws of Christ so that their profession was not a mere profession. It was a transformation. We just saw this in our examination of verse 16. They gave outward evidence. They have a new master. It's not master sin any longer. So the Roman believers not simply known for making a profession of faith. They were not merely telling Rome they were Christian or followers of Christ. They had become slaves of righteousness now. These were not perfect Christians. And we're going to see that as we move further in the book of Romans. There were corrections to be made, instruction to be given, and even some rebukes were necessary. But Paul also saw that their hearts had been truly changed, that their faith was genuine because those imperfect believers had shown themselves to be slaves obedient to the righteousness of Christ. And this should be the visible testimony of every true believer. As we look around today at what is called Christian, it's not hard to discern what is and what is not truly a work of the gospel. When we see churches that call themselves Christian, even gospel-centered, claiming to be under grace, but who openly embrace very unbiblical ideologies and practices, we can know what the work of grace does and does not do. We can know. There are other times when it's more difficult to discern the genuineness of faith because those claiming to be Christian can be very diligent to set up certain moral pillars externally that makes them look as if. But when you see these same ones holding fast to other sins, while they arrogantly boast of their high spiritual status, it is a passage like this one before us that helps us see what the grace of God is actually doing. So these are important things for us to know. We're to embrace these things. Do you not know? It says in verse 16. And because Paul came to know this about the Roman believers, he lifted his voice up to God and said, Praise you, God. I thank you that this is your work on unbelieving sinners. To bring our thoughts to a close this morning, I'd like to draw again some practical observations that you and I can apply to our lives from this doctrinal presentation of two masters. First, I think we have to be encouraged. We have to be encouraged to proclaim the full gospel. The full gospel. We have to be encouraged to proclaim the full gospel. Very often today, we hear the gospel preached in a way that is all, almost seems motivated by our desire to make it easy to digest. Come to Jesus. Let him take your troubles away. Give your heart to Christ and receive eternal life. Come to the cross and find the happiness that you've always hungered for. Those are some of the gospel invitations that we hear about today. And there is a measure of truth in some of those presentations. But I am also convinced that these kind of calls to the gospel very often produce false believers. Or short timers, we might say. Because they're looking for happiness and they don't get it the way they want it or the way they think you should have it, oftentimes they walk away from the faith. 
The epistle to the Romans is considered to be one of the most expansive presentations of the gospel found in the New Testament. And what this does for us in our study of of this amazing letter is that it teaches us to preach the whole counsel of God as Paul spoke of in Acts chapter 20. And if we're going to be faithful to the cross of Christ, we must preach that the Son of God lived among us, died on a cross to deliver sinners from the bondage of sin and to make us slaves who will be obedient to his righteousness. In other words, we preach this. If you come to the cross by faith, expect that the old man of sin will be laid to rest and will be no more. What your heart once lusted after must end, and you will be raised up to be a slave to Christ. You will yield yourselves over to God's will, God's pleasure, and God's purposes to obey the righteousness of his laws, to mortify the sinful desires of the flesh, and in being raised up in newness of life in Christ, you will walk in the light of his will all the way from this moment into eternal glory where you will spend all of your endless days praising and worshiping him. That is probably a call in the gospel that's going to turn many away because, as Jesus said, they did not come to the light because they loved their darkness too much. Men love their sins. We need to preach the whole counsel of the gospel so that we're not guilty of trying to produce false believers. They need to hear the whole truth. And secondly, we are to encourage that though we sin, we are forgiven. There's a lot of heavy doctrine here. But we're to remember at the very heart of what Paul is writing in Romans chapter 6 is though, that though we still sin as Christians, we are forgiven. We know what the grace of God does. And I know tomorrow I will fail, but I know I'll be forgiven. You know this to be true, but how we need to remind ourselves that being a slave to the righteousness of Christ also means we are a confessing people. And because God is faithful to us, God is faithful to his church, he's going to cleanse us and purify us from every defilement. Is that not worth something to us? We're not perfect people, but in Christ we are made perfect. So if we're struggling with a sin, we know that in Christ we confess, we repent, and he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. The big stuff and the little stuff, if there is such a thing as little sin. What Paul means when he writes of being freed from sin, from delivered from the master's sin bondage, is that we're no longer held by sin. We are forgiven. We're set free from sin's condemnation, even those that we are yet to commit. And this should encourage our hearts in Christ that master sin has no further claim on us. And number three... We are encouraged to be grateful for the, de- the deliverance of others. One of the things that builds our unity in Christ is that we share the same doctrine of deliverance with each other. What Paul does here is in, it, in verse 17 and 18 especially is that he encourages us to be grateful for the deliverance of the person sitting next to you, the other people in this church, the people in your family that are redeemed. Do we thank God for seeing in them that they've been rescued from master sin and now they've been placed as a slave under Christ? As we fellowship together, as we worship together, as we serve our king together, rather than observance 
observing all the faults and the annoyances that each of us have, our text encourages us to be just be amazed and in wonder at what God has done to that obnoxious sinner sitting next to you. Praise God. We're a redeemed people. And we're, we should be amazed at the grace that has transformed us out of slavery and into slavery. That has set us free so that we, we can be free in Christ. Every year on the 4th of July, we celebrate freedom and liberty. And that freedom of liberty doesn't even come close to compare what Christ accomplished on the cross in setting me free and you free. Do we celebrate like we do in the 4th of July? Are there fireworks going up? Well, you don't need fireworks to celebrate that. But what we should do, as Paul shows us, worship God for the one that's saved next to you. Worship God for the, the amazing work of grace. And I think this builds our unity. It builds our love. It builds our appreciation for one another. It builds our adoration and gratitude for a God that saves. A, a pathetic sinner like me, but the pathetic sinner sitting next to me as well. Father in heaven, we rejoice together at the amazing grace of a God that loves sinners in spite of who we are and in spite of what we did to you and how we resisted you. Paul shows us what it means to be aroused and excited by this kind of grace that doesn't ignore sin, but your grace deals with sin. It forgives sin. It grants us eternal life. But Father, it puts us under a new master, a master that's obedient to you. It brings us into the pleasure, the joy, and the reward of eternal righteousness, the righteousness of our God. Help us to celebrate these things in a way that is worshipful and grateful to our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray together. Amen.